me just give you a few brief words of introduction to Revelation 19 before we get there. First of all, I owe you an apology. Last week I said that we'll see in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper that we eat the flesh of kings. And that was a misremembering of what happens in this chapter. It's actually not us that eats the flesh of kings. It's the birds of the air in chapter 19. And so uh, it reminded me that I should not try to quote from memory the book of Revelation. It's a bad idea. Never try to do that. Second of all, just as a brief reminder, this is an apocalyptic, prophetic book, a vision from Jesus Christ to the Apostle John to be delivered to the seven churches in Asia Minor, then to be delivered to us, the church. It is a story, a figurative picture about Jesus and his bride, that is us, the church, and it is meant for our sanctification and our edification. If you remember in chapter 1... Jesus tells John that these are the things that have happened, that are happening, and that will happen. We have seen things in the past, like the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus in chapter 12 and 13. We have seen many of these things that are ongoing, like the tribulation and trials of the church. From 19 forward, as we read this morning, we will see some things that are, uh, that are going to happen in the future. Future things, like the marriage supper of the Lamb this morning, the new Jerusalem the new heavens, and the new earth. These things are coming in chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22. So with that, let's read aloud. Let me ask you, we're going to do this uh, corporately together. There are, again, the angels, uh, the voices of all the hosts in heaven, the angels who are going to be singing. Now, I'm not going to ask you to sing. I will ask you to read. In verses 1, verse 3, and verse 6, those voices in heaven, they begin with hallelujah. So whenever we get to a beginning part with beginning with hallelujah, we're all going to read together. I will pause and I will make it obvious that that's your part. And we're going to be listening for a little bit of what it sounded like to John when he received this vision from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you if you're able to please stand. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 6, those are your parts, beginning with hallelujah. I'll make it obvious. Let's hear the reading of God's word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the tw 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we confess that you are the Lord God. You're the one who reveals yourself to us. If not for your revelation to us, we would have no understanding, no inclination towards you, our Lord and our God. And so we ask this morning that your spirit would be at work here, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you work in our hearts as we desire to know you better, to see you more clearly, to be made more like your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that you have not left us to ourselves, and we ask that you would be glorified this morning in everything we say and do. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this, amen. Well, we have a dog at home. That's why I've drawn a dog on the board. We have a dog at home. She's a very good dog, and her name is Betty. Betty was named after Elizabeth Elliot. And so whenever I tell people about our dog, Betty, I tell them that she's the most reverent dog that I know. She's, got a, she's named after a, a woman who served the Lord all of her life. Uh, Nolan, our foster son, who came into our house seven months ago, uh, came into our house and he met us and he met our dog, Betty, and it was about the same time that he was really beginning to learn how to speak, how to articulate himself. And so uh, Nolan came to discover that uh, he didn't believe that dogs were called dogs, he thought they were called Bettys. That's what he believes dogs are called. And so every dog that he sees, he calls it Betty, and he can't be convinced otherwise. He truly believes that dogs are called Bettys. So whenever we'll be walking on the road, we'll pass someone else walking the other way, and inevitably they'll be walking with their dog, and he will yell, Betty, 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 and the, the people will kind of be dumbstruck, like, why is he yelling Betty at us, okay? And if you were to ask Nolan, how did you know that that was a Betty that passed you by? How do you know that was a dog that walked by you? Nolan would give you the same answer I think most children would or, or most adults might even give you. He would begin to describe the characteristics of a dog. He would say uh, it had a, a wagging tail or it had paws or it had long ears or a snout. He would observe the character traits of the dog to affirm in his mind that it actually was a dog that walked by him. Okay? Now this is going somewhere, so bear with me. But we all know that those aren't the things that make a dog a dog, right? Those aren't, the, those aren't the things that make a dog in its essence to be a dog. We know that there are other animals that have wagging tails and paws and long snouts and big ears, okay? Cats have them, raccoons have them. I've even seen children who say a dog is the thing that wears a collar and gets walked on a leash. And their whole world is turned upside down when they see someone walking their cat, okay, on a leash. Or even their child, which you've also seen. I know you've seen that, okay? Those aren't the things that make a dog a dog. Those are character traits of a dog, but that's not what makes a dog in its essence to be a dog. You see, as we talk about 
uh, this morning as we look at this passage, this is an important principle, so I'm just going to write it down. The essence of a dog is what we find in its DNA. It has canine DNA. The character traits that we observe in a dog are simply its characteristics, not the things that make it a dog in its essence, all right? Now, this morning, as we look at this passage, I would suggest to you that as we look at this text, it's a helpful differentiation or or a helpful analogy as we speak about the relationship between faith and works. I'm not sure if you noticed it, but as we're reading about the marriage supper of the Lamb this morning, there's a great deal of conversation in the marriage supper concerning the relationship between faith and works. Okay? Are the people who appear at the supper, are they there because of faith or are they there because of works? And what is the role that faith has and what is the, the role that works have? Now, I tell you this morning, you're likely aware of the fact that this is a long, ongoing debate in the Christian church, the relationship between faith and works. It's an important one that we work out as Christians, not only for our Christian living, but so that we can better understand passages like these. I, I want to give you a little bit of the background of the conversation about faith and works that I think will lead us into a conversation about the marriage supper of the Lamb. You think about all the things that we read in Scripture. For instance, in Paul's letters to the, to the Romans and to the Galatians, what does Paul say about faith? He says, you've been saved by faith apart from works of the law, Right? And so Paul will emphasize in those letters the role that faith plays, how important our faith is to our salvation. Often in Christian circles, this gets compared, for instance, to James' epistle, right? Some people have even suggested, let's take James out of the Bible. James seems to be so in conflict with Romans and Galatians. James says in his letter, show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. That's what James will say. So we see an apparent tension between faith and works. Jesus, in his own words, okay, you can think, for instance, of John 3.16. Jesus says, uh, whosoever believes in me shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's a faith statement. Whosoever believes, okay? Jesus refers to faith. Uh, Other places, like in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5.20. Jesus will make statements that sound a lot like works righteousness. He will say in Matthew 5, 20, unless your works or unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and of the scribes, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we see even the words of Jesus. Well, what is it? Is it faith or works? And what's the relationship between the two? You're probably also aware of this issue throughout the course of church history, right? What is one of the most common phrases we use to describe the theology that comes out of the Reformation, sola fide, only by faith. Sola gratia, by the grace of God, through faith. That was the emphasis of the Reformation church. And you might even know that then this is in response to the affirmations of the Catholic church. Okay? The Second Council of Trent. Everyone always wonders, where can we, where can we see the documentation of the beliefs of the Catholic Church at this moment. The Second Council of Trent in 1547, the Second Council of Trent says, if anyone claims salvation by faith alone, let them be anathema, okay? Let, let them be cursed, all right? This is, this is the tension that we deal with. And, and for Christians, then, we wrestle over what is the, what is the role of faith and, and what is the role of works in the Christian life? How do these two things fit together? 
Both of these things are at play in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning. As we look at this supper, how do Christians come to the table, and then what is the role of works righteousness in our presence before the Lamb at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Because these things also get mentioned in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in case you you didn't catch it, that's what's happening in chapter 19. Chapter 19 begins with these doxological praises, and you read them out loud. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. This Hebrew word that is a a glory and honor to the living God, three times repeated in Revelation 19. And you get the feeling, as we read Revelation 19, that we are building towards something. Okay, the praises get more momentous and more powerful and more significant as the chapter goes on. We are building and building and building until we get to verse 6. And in verse 6, it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. All of this is building toward a wedding feast, toward a great celebration, toward the most significant celebration and feast and dinner in all the history of humanity, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb that's introduced in Revelation 19, it will be picked up on in Revelation chapter 21. It has been alluded to throughout the course of Scripture. Here's how we need to think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, okay? This is the consummation of all the promises of God throughout the history of the church. Now think of it like this. From the first coming of Christ, and even before that, we can think of the the role that we play as Christian believers, as followers of the Lord God. We can think of the role that we play as a bride who is engaged to the groom. Okay, And the church has been engaged to the groom for more than 2,000 years. Okay? And what happens in Scripture is all of the promises of God, all of the prophetic predictions, all of the good things that God is constantly pointing us to, these are the promises of engagement. And the bride is waiting on the consummation of the marriage. That's what's being portrayed in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a picture of consummation, of finalization, of the beautiful realization of everything that we have long waited on. You see, in this way, we could very easily compare it to what we've seen in the last few chapters. We saw Babylon the prostitute, and we saw her relationship to the beast, and we said this is an unholy marriage. Everything about it was wrong. And from the descriptions that we read to the odd relationship that she had and the way eventually the beast would consume her, everything was wrong about it. In comparison to that, the groom, Jesus Christ, waits on the bride who will one day be presented to him and it will be the realization of everything that we have waited on, right? The the annihilation of everything bad and everything wrong and everything evil and everything that is broken and everything that is painful and all the suffering, all that is done away with And all goodness and beauty and permanence is realized at the second coming of Christ, which is now described to us as an analogous picture as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is the very thing that will be described in the coming chapter. 
Now listen, here's, here's where I want to focus our attention this morning. We don't have much time, so I want to talk about a few verses. Verses 7 through 9. This is the substance of the description in chapter 19 of the marriage supper. And as I read this, just listen for the language that has a tension between faith and works. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. First question, what does it mean for the bride to make herself ready? What does it look like for the church to be made ready or to make herself ready for the Lamb? We'll come back to it. It was granted her to clothe herself. What does it mean that it was granted her to clothe herself? With fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What does it mean that the fine linen that clothes the bride of Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, what does it mean that that fine linen is our righteous deeds? Sounds like works. What does it mean? How does it function in the life of the church? And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then the last two verses. I love the verses that we read where John, we get a little bit of humanity. Okay, so we saw it last week. He marveled at the beast. We've seen it when he says to the angel, you know, you know tell me who it is, right? There's a little bit of uh, practicality in John. And here, John sees the angel, and he's about to worship the angel. And the angel says, no, 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 no. Okay, um, it's really good to be able to relate with John as he's receiving this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, as we think about this, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we talk about the, the works-faith dynamic that's happening in the marriage supper, this is where I believe that the analogy of the dog is really helpful. Okay, so I want to flesh this out, and if you have a really good memory, you'll remember that I used this analogy about four years ago. Okay, four years ago, July of 2019, used this analogy, uh, I think it's a very helpful analogy as we think about faith and works. Listen, here's the bottom line. As we think about who we are in Christ Jesus, our essence, the Bible says, our essence, our DNA, the thing that makes us to be Christians is, is by the grace of God through faith, right? The, the faith that God gives us, it is a gift from Him that we believe in Him and that by faith we receive the salvation given to us, that our hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit, that we are reconciled to Him and redeemed, and that this is not by our works, okay? So as we think about the works of the Christian, they're much like the character attributes of the dog, okay? So we can think about the works of the Christian. We have joy and suffering. I'm going to make that the tail of the dog, okay? The Christian has a life of prayer. That would be the paws of the dog. Uh, the ears might be the compassion and love of the Christian, the Christian speaks in truth, okay? These are the character attributes that we have seen in the book of Revelation that are the traits, they are the traits or the works of the Christian. As we begin thinking about the marriage supper of the Lamb, we have to keep in mind that what makes us a Christian in our essence is the grace of God received through faith, sola fide, by faith we've been saved, not of any works. That is to say, God doesn't look at us and say, man, you really have joy and compassion and you're committed to prayer and you love the truth. Therefore, I will make you to be my bride. I will make you to be my follower. That's not how God works. A gift of faith 
apart from any works of the law, not because of anything we've done, not because we're the greatest people, not because we're the most obedient people, but to demonstrate his grace, he takes people who didn't have those things and he makes them. He changes their spiritual DNA. He, in essence, makes them essentially to be Christians. And then the character attributes of the Christian are the things that we wear on our outside that people see. Now listen, here's a few of the failures of the modern church then before we get again to the marriage supper. First failure of the modern church would be that the modern church often says to unbelievers, if you just do these things, you'll be a Christian, okay? If you just have joy, if you just pray more, if you just love more or have compassion, okay? The message often of the church to the watching world is if you just do, if you just be, if you just say, then you will essentially be a Christian, okay? And what happens when that happens is there are many who are not essentially or in their essence followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in, in, their, in their mind they actually believe that they are. And so they attend church, they do the things that other Christians do, they walk among us, they live among us, they think if they look like us then they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's what happens. Now the analogy is very simple. Just because you have ears and a tail and a snout, does it make you a dog? Of course not. I gave you a bunch of different versions of things that have claws and tails, right? You may be a strange looking miniature pony, but you, uh, you may think that you're a dog, but actually be, not be a dog, okay? What makes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is faith, right? Through faith we've been saved. Now, here's another failure of the modern church. Another failure of the modern church is that often, too often we hear, well, these things are not important, okay? The works of righteousness, they're not important. If you believe by faith, nothing else, nothing else is necessary. You don't really need joy, compassion, truth, prayer. All that's necessary is for you to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things, you can take them or you can leave them. They're not necessary. Well, let me tell you the problem with that. Have you ever seen a mangy dog? You seen a mangy dog? Anybody knows what a mangy dog looks like? Yeah, they, they don't have hair. Sometimes they have missing ears. Uh, they don't sound like a dog. Okay, when you look at a mangy dog, you might say, I'm not sure if that's a dog or not. Okay? I can't really tell. It may be or it may not be. It could be like a coyote or a wolf parading around like a dog. I mean, it could be a, a dog, but it sure probably doesn't feel like a dog. It feels like a dumpster rat, right? It doesn't look like a dog at all, okay? You see, the, the problem with that is that the righteous deeds of the saints that we, that we see described here in the, in the marriage supper of the Lamb are the characteristics that are being worked out in the heart of believers, not the things that save us, but when we observe them, we say these are the things that that we ought to see in those whose essence has been changed by the grace of God through faith. These are the character attributes of the followers of Christ that ought to define the church. And what happens with believers in whom these things are not present is they begin to ask the question, am I really a Christian? Has my essence actually been changed or am I just parading around like one? Am I one, am I not one, okay? Because these things, you think about it, a dog that looks like a dog and barks like a dog and, and acts like a dog and everybody says, oh, that's a dog, is a dog who says, I'm a dog, I know I'm a dog, right? And has an assurance that they are in their essence a dog, right? That, that is the challenge that is going on in the Christian church. 
that we are called to live as followers of Christ, and these are the things that we see in ourselves and in others that say our hearts have been changed. We are in essence followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the evidence is in the outworking of the heart that God is doing, that we hate our sin, that we love righteousness, that we pursue Him, that we want to be nearer to Him, that we demonstrate these characteristics. We, we testify to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a desire for the things of Christ. These are the evidences. This is what's happening in the conversation about faith and works, okay? Now listen, again, these, these are the things that are at play in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and let me just ask you a few questions. And, and we, if we look at this passage, we can answer these, these questions for ourselves. First of all, in the, in the consummate celebration, the feast the realization of everything that has been promised to the church at this marriage supper of the Lamb, how do we come to the table? How do we get there? It's the first question to ask of this passage. You, you see what it says in verse 9? The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me tell you, it's by invitation. That's something that's been clearly worked out through this whole book of Revelation. It's by invitation. And I want to remind you something. The whole of Scripture, the entirety of the Word of God tells us that the invitation of God is not because of the works that we have done, but because of His grace. God invites us to join Him at this feast because He loves us and He desires to save us. That is not of any works that we have done, but because He has desired to make His works known, to demonstrate His grace to make us to be recipients of his mercy, to make us to be a visible picture before a watching world of what the grace of God actually looks like. The invitation for us is by the grace of God received through faith, we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We come to the consummate union with our Savior and the realization of everything that this represents, we come to that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not of works of the law that you have done before or presently or that you will do in the future. Not because God looks and says, hey, one day they're going to do great things for me, therefore. Okay, not because of anything in and of you, but because he desires to make his power and glory and mercy and grace known in a people who didn't deserve it. And so who is at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. By invitation of the living God. That's who are there at the dinner. Now, second question. When the bride is presented to the groom, when the church is presented to Jesus Christ, her Lord and Savior, what is she clothed with? What is she arrayed with? What is her beauty at the marriage supper? Well, again, look at the passage. Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay, you see now where the righteous deeds are coming into play in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The passage says that when the church of Jesus Christ is presented to her, that the thing that she is clothed with, the beauty and the garments that she wears, right, will be her righteous deeds, okay? 
that the, the character traits and the works of those who are in Christ, their joy, their compassion, their truth, their prayer, all of the things that we read in Scripture that we've been exhorted to do as a, as a demonstration of who we are in Christ Jesus, those things will be the things that clothe the beautiful bride of Christ as she is presented to him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And listen, the analogy of the wedding, the analogy of the wedding is one that very easily crosses over from our culture to the Hebrew culture or to the Greek culture 2,000 years ago. Okay, just as when we have a wedding and the groom is standing there at the front, he's like, I haven't seen the bride all day. I haven't seen her dress. I don't know what she looks like. And then when she comes down the aisle, the groom is like, ah, she's amazing, beautiful, right? It's that moment, okay? In the Hebrew, especially in the Hebrew tradition, this was even more so, okay? Leading up to the week of the marriage, the, the bride was being prepared, and, and she was preparing herself, and her bridesmaids were helping her with fine perfumes and preparing for the wedding, and the groom doesn't see her, and on the, the marriage day, it's like this beautiful presentation of the bride to the groom. That very thing is being portrayed in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That Jesus Christ has waited for this moment. That, that he is the groom waiting on his bride. And when she is presented to him, she is beautiful. And, and not only does she think herself to be beautiful, not only does she see her beautiful gown, the, the fine linens bright and pure as she's presented to him, but he also finds her to be beautiful. And he sees the righteousness that he has produced in her, right, by the blood of Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit. He sees that and it is beautiful to him. The things that we do in Christ Jesus, the work that we're called to is a fragrant offering to the Lord God. It's not that our works don't matter. Our works matter very much, right? We, we have been called. What does Paul say in Philippians 2? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Okay, there's a work. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Why? It is God who wills and works within you. Okay? This is where we see the two things at work. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It is God who will and works, who wills and works within you, right? The two things at work. It is God who is at working, and he calls us then to work. Deeds of righteousness according to our salvation in Christ Jesus. Okay? The exhortation for Christians is to know that you're, you are in essence saved by faith. You are called to works of righteousness because you are called to be like Christ. And these things are beautiful to him. These things are beautiful to him. Look at finally the, the last question. You might ask, well, how can we do that? How can we do that? We know we're wretched sinners, right? We know we're broken by the fall, that even our, our most righteous thoughts are mixed together with sin. We know that we're conflicted in our hearts, that when we want to do what is right, we, we don't always do it, and we don't do it well. How are we to do that? How are we to, to adorn ourselves, to clothe ourselves with righteous works? Well, look at the other phrase that's used there in verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself. I love that word, it, it was granted her. It's the word that means literally to gift, okay? to gift or to give. You could say it was gifted to her. It was gifted to her to clothe herself with this beautiful gown that is the righteous works of the saints. What does that mean? It means very simply this, the impetus, the originating work, the power, the motivation, the movement for us 
to do works of righteousness, glorifying to God, living as believers, as Christ has called us to do. The, the originating power of that comes from God. If, the only way we can do that is if God is at work in us. It goes back to, the, to our essence. If we've been saved by faith and the Spirit is at work in us, our hearts have been changed and the Spirit continues that work only by the power of God who grants us those righteous deeds. Only by the power of God can we live according to His commands, glorifying Him in all that we do because the blood of Christ makes us to be righteous. The Spirit of God is at work in our lives to sanctify us and, and therefore then these righteous deeds are granted to us. They are gifted to us. They come from God the Father to us that when we're presented to the Lamb at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we might be beautiful to Him. For we've been saved by grace through faith and clothed in the righteous deeds given to us by God the Father and carried out by us now. That, that we might be presentable to Him, that we might glorify Him. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. You see, that's the beautiful thing that's being worked out in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as we come to chapter 21, we will talk more about this marriage supper, but this is simply an introduction, okay? The consummation of everything we've waited on is portrayed in this marriage supper. Now, let me just wrap it up with this, okay? Here's what's beautiful about this. I don't know if you have kind of kept the bigger picture in mind, but here's the bigger picture. We have worked through a lot of chapters of Revelation that have been about suffering, trials, and tribulation. As we get to chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and 22, the beauty of these chapters is that we are coming out of trials, suffering, and tribulation, and we are being presented to Christ clothed with our righteous deeds as a fragrant, beautiful offering to God, joined together with Jesus Christ to be forever with Him. And the beauty of that is that we are coming out of trials and we are coming out of suffering, and that is the place, it is the, it, is the, uh, it is the position, it is where those things are being worked out. So the church through trials and the church through suffering and the church through tribulation is being worked in such a way that the Holy Spirit is producing righteous deeds even though we're going through trials and suffering. That we might have perseverance and we might have uh, compassion and joy in our suffering. The Spirit is working those things out through trials and suffering and tribulation through this time why Jesus Christ still reigns, yet we experience those trials. All of that is being worked out so that one day we be presented to the Lord Jesus Christ through trial and suffering and tribulation as the beautiful bride of Christ to be presented to Him on that day. Isn't that beautiful? And the marriage supper of the Lamb is the picture of the moment when Christ returns again when we realize finally that all death is gone and all pain is gone and all suffering is gone and not that it's just dissipated or it's kind of done away with or abbreviated but it is fully consumed and devoured and annihilated. That's the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the final realization of that truth. And on that day, we will glorify the Lord, and we will celebrate, and what will happen is final feast, right? Final celebration, a glorious rejoicing with our Lord and Savior, where we will be with Him from that day forward, coming to the table, not by works, but by faith, by the grace of God, 
being presented to him beautifully clothed in the righteous deeds of the church and forever with him. It's absolutely beautiful. It makes you want to sing, doesn't it? That's exactly what the, the host in heaven do. That's why they're singing this song. That's why John says they, they cried out like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's us. That's the church. So let's rejoice together that we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you have loved us so much to send your Son. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that you have called us and you have loved us and you have redeemed us through your Son, Christ Jesus. And we thank you that his blood has covered all of our sins, not for any work that we have done, but because you're a gracious God. We ask, Lord God, that you would increase our faith and we ask as you increase our faith that you would change our hearts, that we would die to sin and the flesh, that we would be raised to new life in Christ Jesus, that our desires and our affections and our deeds and our thoughts and the things that are going in our hearts, that all of that would be changed and not just dissipated, not just made less, but it would be drastically altered that we would be a people who hate our sin and love your righteousness and would desire to see your name proclaimed throughout the nations. We ask, Lord God, that you would do that this morning and in the coming days and weeks. And we ask, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you would make these things ever clear, not only through the preaching of the word, but through the partaking the means of grace, through the bread and the wine. We love you. We thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, and it's in his name we ask all of this. Amen.